good songs, good message. Well, good to see you back tonight. Let's spend some time in uh, Psalm 129, if you want to take your Bible and turn there. Psalm 129. And our thoughts this evening will center on never forsaken, never forsaken. When I was a little fella, I was in elementary school, I uh, was allowed to work in the library. Now, kids today, it's all electronic, but we had the Dewey Decimal System. We had those little cards with the numbers on them and the letters, and you had to go, all the numbers on the back of the book, and you had to go find exactly the place where it went. And so part of my job was to take the books that have been turned back in and go hunt down where they go and put them back in the right place on the shelf. The librarian, Mrs. Psalms, that was her name, um, she uh, had a party at the end of the year, and all of us who worked in the library could go over there and eat out and have hamburgers, and they had a pool. And I didn't know how to swim and uh, ended up in the deep end of the pool, and uh, that was a bad feeling. I was going down, and she threw a, a life you know, float thing in there, and I got on it and got to the side. But I remember that feeling of um, you go to put your feet down, and there's no... There's nothing there, just water. So you go under the water, and you don't know what to do, and you panic. <clears throat> so later, my mom took me to get swimming lessons. Probably a good idea. And uh, the swimming lessons instructor said, we're going to get in the deep end of the pool. And I said, not me. She goes, no, you have to, you have to get in the deep end of the pool. I said, no, the last time I got in the deep end of the pool, it didn't work out so well. I'll stay right down here where my feet are touching the bottom. And uh, if you didn't know my mama, she came over and said, you're getting in the deep end of the pool. <clears throat> so that was that. And, uh, but the point of the story is this. I remember that to learn to swim, the thing that I was afraid of, the thing that was tough is the thing I had to do. In other words, I had to get in the deep end of the pool if I was going to learn how to swim. I had to get in the deep end of the pool if I was going to learn how to tread water and not drown and though I was afraid, <clears throat> the lady who was doing the lessons was right there. And so I really wasn't in any danger because she was in, I was within arm's reach of her all the time. And I remember to graduate the class, we had to jump off the diving board. Again, I said, I'm not doing that. <clears throat> and the lady said, I'll jump off the diving board with you. I said, I'll think about it. So uh, ended up, I had to, Mama said, you're graduating from this class. If I have to throw you off of there, you're getting off of that diving board. So rather than get thrown off, I said, okay, I'll jump off with you. So the lady held on to me, and we jumped off. And now looking back, she held me up so I wouldn't go under the water when we went in the water and that kind of thing. So even though I was afraid, she was right there, and, and I was never really in any danger. And I remember the same thing being true <clears throat> of the children learning to swim, my older children, and even Haley, when they, when, when, when they came, she would stay in the shallow end of the pool. And, we, and, the, and the point is, the thing that they're afraid of and the thing I was afraid of was the very thing that I needed to embrace to grow. It was the thing I had to face. I had to go get in the deep end of the pool to be able to learn how to swim. Now, the spiritual connection is very clear there. You can see it. We don't like having to get in the deep end of the pool spiritually, okay? We don't like it. I mean, we, we like the safe shallow end of the spiritual pool where God's taking care of us and we can stand on our feet. But when God, when God pushes us out of the confines of the, of the shallow end and our feet can no longer touch the bottom, 
and we, and we have to swim or go under, we don't like that. But we need it. That's the thing that we need to grow spiritually. Our, our faith has to be stretched. In other words, we have to be tried and tested to learn to grow. And, and here's the thing. Even when God puts us in the deep end of the pool and we don't like it and we're uncomfortable, we're never really in any danger. You know why? Because he's never far away from us. He's always within arm's length and he's not going to let us drown. You know, when I was teaching my kids to swim, I kept telling them, I'm not going to let you drown, honest. I'm, I, I love you and I'm, I'm going to, you'll go under and I'm going to be right here. I'm not going to let you drown. God says that to us over and over, doesn't he? I'm not going to let you drown. I'm not going to let you become so overwhelmed by this thing uh, that you can't function. The fact is God is, is always with us. But we need those times when God allows difficulties to come, but we're never forsaken. <clears throat> One of my favorite verses that deals with that is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The Bible tells us, Paul said, there's no temptation taking you, no trial, no tribulation, no difficulty taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested above what you're able, but will with the temptation make a way for you to escape. Now, what's the promise in that verse? That no matter what we face in life, God knows what our limit is. God knows how much I can take. God knows, God knows my breaking point. And he promises that he's never going to allow me to be tested or tried beyond my breaking point. Does that not encourage you? You say, yeah, but I'm still in the deep end of the pool. Well, okay, just paddle harder, all right? I mean, God's not going to let you drown, all right? But God will never allow us to be, to be in a place where we're going to be completely overwhelmed. Now, this passage in Psalm 129 really is about that. The psalmist is retrospective here. The psalmist looks back at Israel's history. And from his perspective, he says, man, we've had a hard time. And if you read Israel's history, you go, yeah, you have, okay? He said, we've, we've, we've been buffeted. We've been oppressed. We've been defeated. We've been taken into captivity. We, we, it looked at times like we weren't going to survive. But then he comes to the conclusion that God's never forsaken us. And, and God's never allowed us to be completely overwhelmed. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 129. He, said, he repeats himself for emphasis. He says, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Now look at the last phrase. Yet they have not prevailed against me. Many a time, he's saying, that our neighbors, our, the nations around us, many a time those who hate us have oppressed us, they've harassed us, even, even conquered us and seemed to have decimated us. And if you think of the reason why, why would Israel's neighbors hate them so much? I mean, think, for what purpose, even today, if you want to to the 21st century, what is it about Israel that people are, are, are they, the whole world seems to at times have become anti-Semitic and they hate Israel? Why? Well, because they're God's people. And Satan moves the world to be that way. And so the psalmist simply says, man, we, we can't seem to catch a break here. I mean, every time we turn around, there's a nation wanting to conquer us. And every time we turn around, it's difficult from our youth. Now, since this is a Sunday night, and I like history so much, you're going to have to go along with me on a little, a little trek here. I got to thinking about it. Okay, we've been oppressed from our youth, the psalmist said. And I got to thinking, I said, okay, well, let, let's kind of recount this thing. And I said, man, he's right. Where did it start? Where did Israel become a nation? 
in Egypt. Good answer. God moved them there, and they grew from 70 into a million and a half, two million, and so now they're a nation. From their very inception as a nation, what happened? Joseph died, and a Pharaoh came to the throne who knew him not, and he made slaves out of them and, and, and put them under taskmasters and made them build bricks and made them build all the buildings in Egypt. So from their very inception as a nation, from the very time they became a nation, they were oppressed. In fact, Pharaoh instituted infanticide to try to do population control. He was killing all the baby boys, and then we get to the story about Moses and the little, and the little basket get put in the river. But the fact is, the, the, the psalmist says, man, from our, from our very beginning, we've had a hard time. From our very beginning, we've been oppressed and we've been afflicted, and yet God's not forsaken us. And then I, I was thinking of some other nations. Do you know who the, who the Moabites and Ammonites are? Pop quiz, you ready? This is for a grade, so you better think. Where did the Ammonites and the Moabites come from? Anybody know? When I tell you, you'll go, Lot, that's right. Lot, his daughters, the incestuous relationship, two boys. Did you know that the Ammonites and the Moabites perpetually persecuted Israel? I mean, just every time you turn around, those two nations were, in fact, when Israel, when God led Israel out of Egypt and Moses leads them to the land, guess who were the two nations who said, you can't come this way? Moabites and Ammonites. In fact, it was those two nations, the, the, uh, the, the Moabites, it was them who led Israel into, into immorality. It was the Moabite women that, that Balaam said, send your women into the camp and cause them to sin and God will destroy them. And that was the plan. And it was the Moabite women who did that. And it was the Ammonites, it was that king, Sihon and the other guy, Balak, who hired Balaam to try to curse Israel. So even from their inception, as they're coming to the promised land, the descendants who are really part of their family, because Lot was a nephew to Abraham, these, these folks are persecuting them and, and, and trying to destroy them. And so these two nations were completely against them. And how about the Canaanites? Now, the Canaanites is a, is a, is a broader category of people who lived in the area of Canaan, uh, in the area where God was going to give them the land. But the Canaanites, God gave them a warning 400 years before Israel got there. Do you remember? God told Abraham, he said, your descendants are going to go in when I make a nation out of them, and I'm going to give the inhabitants of the land 400 years to repent. Well, the Canaanites didn't repent, and when Israel came out of, out of captivity out of Egypt, God said, I want you to wipe out the Canaanites. You think, well, that's tough. Well, no, God gave them 400 years, and now judgment had come, and God said, wipe them out. But, you know, Israel failed to do that, and they made league with some of them, and it was a perpetual thorn in their side for the rest of the time they were there because the Canaanites were always calling them problems, okay? So we had the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Canaanites. And how about the Philistines? Remember those folks? Where did the Philistines come from? Boy, you're so glad you came tonight. You're going to know so much stuff. They, they were really a seafaring people. They weren't from around there, so to say, but they lived along the coast. They came up there in ships. And by the way, do you know why the Philistines had such luck in wearing out Israel all the time in battle? Because they had better weapons. They had iron, and they, and they were much more advanced in weapon making, and Israel couldn't fight with them. That is until Saul and then David came along with his little sling and his rock and killed Goliath, and you know the whole story there. And it was actually David that God used to subdue the Philistines who had been a perpetual thorn in the side of Israel. And God used David to subdue them, mighty warrior. 
And then the Assyrians later came along and really subdued them, and then the Babylonians destroyed them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar killed them and ran them off. But the Philistines were a nation that, that perpetually raided Israel, came in and took their crops, would come in and take their stuff every year at harvest. And so when the psalmist says, man, we were, we were persecuted by everybody around us, true. Now what about the Assyrians? I just mentioned them. Do you know who they were? Northern Mesopotamia. Assyrians are really another broad group of people in northern Mesopotamia, Iraq, Iran, that area. They became a mighty nation. And uh, they, were, they were a force to be reckoned with. In fact, God used the Assyrians to chasten the northern kingdom and take them all into captivity. The only part that was left was Judah and you know, half the tribe of Benjamin in the south. But the Assyrians were bad. In fact, you'll remember the Assyrians, when the psalmist says they persecute us, Hezekiah is king in, in Jerusalem. And who's outside the walls? Who shows up? The Assyrians. And remember the Assyrians said, hey, tell Hezekiah your God can't save you because none of the other gods of any other nations can save you. And uh, you can't, he can't save you either, and we're going to take the city. So, in fact, they made fun of him. They said, hey, if you've got guys that can ride horses, we'll give you the horses if you'll come out and fight with us. And then they sent a letter to Hezekiah and signed it and said, your God can't save you. And you remember what Hezekiah did? He took it in the temple and laid down and said, God, they're talking to you. In so many words. And God said uh, to Isaiah, said, tell him that I see what's going on and not one arrow is going to come in the city and I'll take care of the Assyrians. And then one night, what did God do? The angel went out there and slew 185,000 of them while they were asleep. The next day they woke up and their army was dead. And so they decided to go home. See, God don't have no problem saving his people. But would you agree that if you lived in Jerusalem, when the Assyrians are around the city, you're thinking, man, we're done. Right? Because there's no human way. So the psalmist says we're oppressed. Now after the Assyrians who came along. Man. We gotta have a history lesson there. Babylonians, okay? The Babylonians come along. Now we know about the Babylonians, right? Book of Daniel. Right? Nebuchadnezzar's daddy. But then Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne. He defeats the Egyptians at Kirkamish, runs them off, becomes a major power, surrounds Jerusalem in six oh five BC. They surrender, give him all their gold. He comes back in 5 AC and destroys Jerusalem. Now, here's the real, here's the point of all that. If you were a Hebrew living in Jerusalem and your city just got wiped out and your temple destroyed, you might be thinking all the promises of God are null and void because we're gone, we're done. We don't, we don't have a city anymore. Is God hindered by that? Nah, God sent them into captivity and 70 years later he brought them back and rebuilt the city under Nehemiah. But the point is, the psalmist said, every time I turn around, somebody's killing us. Every time I turn around, somebody's oppressing us. Well, let's do the rest of the history while we're at it. You want to? Who's after the Babylonians? Who? Well, the Syrians were before, but the Persians. The Persians beat the Babylonians. And then after the Persians, who came? This little guy, this little guy on a horse from Greece, Alexander the Great. He came and he defeated the Persians. And after Alexander the Great came, he did, he died. And his four generals took over, and one of them was named Seleucus, thus the Seleucid Empire. And so through all this time, you got the Persians. Hey, who persecuted Israel under the Persian Empire? Remember the story in Esther? This guy named Haman, and he hates the Jews, and he wants to, has this plan to kill them all. And God intervenes with Mordecai and Esther, remember? And then, then later, Cyrus, God moves on Cyrus, his pagan king, and he goes, well, you know, the God of heaven told me you all can go home, so they all went home. He sent them back. And then after the Persians, Alexander the Great comes. He dies, and Seleucus 
builds a kingdom in the north, and Ptolemy's in Egypt, and Seleucus is a crazy guy. Matter of fact, from him, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus comes, and he's a type of the Antichrist in the Old Testament, and he tells the Jews, he takes the city and says, you can no longer be Hebrew. In fact, you have to be Hellenistic. Now, you have to be Greek on pain of death. If I see you doing anything Jewish, we're going to kill you. And he slaughtered the Jews by the, by the tens of thousands simply because they didn't want to be Greek. So when the psalmist says, man, we've been pressed on every side, is he kidding? He had no idea, did he? He had no idea from when he was writing how bad it was going to be. And so then the Romans come in AD 63, and they take, or in BC, 63 BC, and they take over the region. And then in AD 70, Titus destroys the city again, destroys Herod's temple. And from, and from AD 70 till 1948, the Jews weren't even a nation. And the psalmist said, man, we're pressed on every side. Oh, let's do one more. Any modern-day oppressors of Israel? Mm, yeah. Uh, a guy named Hitler, right? Six to ten million Jews, depending on who you ask. He just slaughtered them. And again, I ask you, to, listen, this Sunday night, we're just, why the Jews? Why don't, why, why, why don't they pick another, why don't the world pick another group of people to just beat the tar out of every time you turn around? You know, the psalmist goes, man, we're oppressed on every side. Why, why not some other nationality of people, some other ethnic group? You want to know why? Because they're God's people. And Satan will move everything he can on earth to hinder God's plan and to harm God's plan and to harm God's people. Many times we've been afflicted, the psalmist said, but look at verse 2 again. Yet they have not prevailed against me. Boy, that's the victory, isn't it? The psalmist said, man, God threw us in the deep end of the pool and he left us there. Man, we're, we're down here struggling and thrashing around and it looks like we're going to drown, yet they have not prevailed against me. Let me tell you two things that's interesting about this. God allowed it to happen. Now, from a human perspective, that makes us scratch our head, doesn't it? God, they're your people. Why are you letting all that happen to him? I'll give you a couple of reasons. Number one, it suits his purposes. And number two, some of it was chastening. Some of it was for their own sin. Now, let me ask you a question. You ever gotten in trouble with God because of your own sin? You, you ever got taken to the woodshed because you've been, you've been trying to do something God told you not to do or, or not do what God told you to do? Okay. Sometimes God was just taking Israel to the woodshed. Sometimes he was just getting their attention. I'll tell you this. They had a serious problem with idolatry before they went into captivity. And when they came back from captivity, guess what sin they didn't have any more trouble with? Idolatry, okay? They got a lot of other problems, but it wasn't idolatry. They wouldn't worship no other gods after that because they learned their lesson, okay? Sometimes God does the same thing to us. And God allows it for his own purposes and for his own good. You know, in the Old Testament, I mentioned it this morning, Israel is, is referenced as the wife of God. And marriage is used throughout the Bible to, just to be an illustration of God's relationship with his people. For Israel, he's, she was his wife, unfaithful as it was. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Hosea. Remember him? Do you all remember who, what Hosea's wife's name is? Gomer. Who can forget that? Gomer, right? His wife's name is Gomer. Now, Gomer... God said to Hosea, go, go marry a wife, 
and she's going to be unfaithful. Now, God wasn't telling him to marry a wife that was already impure, but God already knew what she was going to do. And Hosea wanted to marry Gomer, and he said, she's going to be unfaithful, so go ahead and marry her. And when he did, what did Gomer do? She had a couple of kids, and then she was unfaithful. She played the harlot. She ran off, and she ended up on an auction block in chapter 3 of Hosea, in slavery, in harlotry. And you know what God said to Hosea? Go down there to the auction block and buy your wife back. I'm not going to expound on that, but Hosea did what God told him, got out his pocketbook, got out his checkbook, went down there to the auction block and bought his wife, and it's, you need to read chapter 3, and he says, come on, let's go home. I bet he said more than that. That's all they put in there. <laughs> but he said to her, come on, let's go home. And he went home. Now, now, why did God have Hosea do all that? It's a picture. It's a picture of Israel. It's a picture of their unfaithfulness to God. That they're in slavery to sin and idolatry and God chasing them, some captivity. But what does it tell them? What the psalmist said, I've chastened you. You've been in the deep end of the pool, but I never left you. I never forsook you. I never left you to be destroyed because you're mine. And God went down to the auction block and he bought Israel back. Now listen, what's God done for you and me? Have you not done the same thing? When we were lost in our sin, and, and listen, the Bible says we were slaves to sin. We were, we, were, we were slaves to sin, doing Satan's bidding, and we couldn't do anything different because that's the only nature we knew. And Jesus went to the cross and bought us out of slavery and brought us back. You see, never forsaken. Never forsaken, even in the middle of it. And even as Christians, listen, even as Christians, we get into trials and temptations and troubles and struggles. God never forsakes us and never leaves us out there. Let me read you a, a set of verses that will encourage you for us as Christians when we get in the deep end of the pool. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, now listen to this, has begotten us, birthed us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now look at verse 4. To an inheritance, something that's ours, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Meaning it's for sure, okay? God's got it reserved for us. Now look at verse 5. Talking about us. Who are what? Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now I read those verses simply because it fits exactly what the psalmist is saying. It is an interesting thing to me as I watch life and I watch Christians, that some Christians have a really difficult life. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, some, some just really have difficulty. They have struggles with various areas that you or I may not struggle in. Some Christians love Jesus, and it seems, and I could name names, I won't, but I, I, it seems that one catastrophe follows another, and you think, Lord, what in the world? The person loves you. I know they're not in sin. They're not reprobate. They're not, they're, they love you, man. They pray. They're in church. They, they tell people about you. And their life looks like an ever-loving train wreck all the time. God, what in the world? But you know what? That child of God is kept by the power of God. No matter what God allows in their life and how difficult it is, God keeps them. 
And you know what it really says is they can take it more than you and I can. Because God, if God ain't put it on us, it may be because he knows our limit. And maybe if God could speak back to me and go, well, you ain't tough enough to do what that person's doing. And I'd just say, ooh, you're right. I mean, never forsaken. The second thing about what happens to Israel and what happens to us sometimes is really to reiterate the point that, that God limits it. God puts a limit on it. If, you ever, if somebody ever says to you, what, is, what are the proofs of God? Now, we could talk about creation and all that, but I'm going to tell you the one you, you hit them back with. You ready? The fact that Israel still exists is an identifiable group of people. There is, there, if there wasn't a God, that wouldn't be. God has absolutely preserved them in their, in their listen, in the fact that they are a, a separate, identifiable ethnic group of people it is a miracle, nothing short of a miracle, that God has preserved them. And why? Because God's limited and not allowed them to be destroyed. Now, the psalmist goes on in verses 3 and 4 to describe how God would deliver them. And this is good. Notice what he says. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Now, the first, in verse 3 there, is very descriptive of physical uh, abuse, torture. My back has been plowed with long furrows. Uh, again, I would encourage you to read history about what happened to the Jews when they were conquered by various groups of people. They were not treated well. Uh, they were often abused and tortured even to death and beaten. All we do is read the account of Jesus' crucifixion and how he was beaten with a whip and his back was was you know turned into 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 a mess and. And I believe even when Pilate looked at him and said, Behold the man, there are a lot of people who come up with reasons why I said, but I think Pilate was, Behold the man, look at him. Uh, because he was uh, beaten really beyond recognition. So the psalmist says here, Listen, the, the, the wicked, those who oppress us, have, have really uh, done a number on us in the severity of our suffering. Uh, the plows have plowed our back. And he says, But in God's care for us, he's cut the cords of the wicked. Meaning God has limited what they could do and God has delivered us from those punishments and from those hurts and from those pains and God has restored us. And I think all of us, listen, dear ones, I think all of us could look back on our lives and I can and I can see places in my life that were, were seriously difficult and God delivered me from those things and delivered me through those things. And that's another point. Sometimes God doesn't deliver us from the thing. He walks us through it. Sometimes because we go, God, take this thing away from me, the answer is like to Paul. No, I'm not going to take away the thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul said, well, then your grace is sufficient for me, and I'll be good in this thing that you allow me to have. Sometimes we pray for deliverance, and God says no. And sometimes God takes us through the thing, but always, always is with us and never forsakes us. I remember I could give many illustrations, and again, sometimes I'll tell the whole story. <clears throat> but our oldest daughter, uh, Megan, um, was very difficult as our first child. And we had waited 10 years to have a child. And so we were excited. Oh, we're going to have a baby. And uh, then the doctor said there's something wrong with the baby. And so, you know, this whole long process of going to the doctor and getting tests and all that kind of stuff. And they did a, a, some kind of alpha fetal protein test. So well, the baby either has Down syndrome or spina bifida. And that's the two choices they gave us. It's one of those two, and we're just going to figure out which one it is. 
that'll get your attention as a, as a prospective dad. And so I don't know how I ended up at home by myself. Maybe Sherry was working and we didn't have any other kids. But I remember laying on the bedroom floor in, in our bedroom in our home here in Argyle and just praying and just, God, I don't, I don't know what's going on and I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I need some help right here. And I, I, don't, I just, you know, when you, when you really are seeking God, you get about as low as you can get, and I couldn't get any lower than my face in the carpet. So I was really asking God to, to do something. And um, I remember praying at the end. I said, Lord, if, you know, whatever happens is okay, we're going to, it'll be okay, but we're going to really need your help, and I'm going to need your help. Well, this is how God works. It wasn't either of those things. The doctors don't know everything. Uh, there was a, they discovered later the umbilical cord, you're supposed to have three arteries in there. Now I learned a lot of stuff in that process. And there were only two arteries, and so the fact there were only two arteries instead of three was making all the tests be off. And you've seen Megan, she's just fine. She, you know, sings like a hummingbird and does all that stuff. So the point is, listen, God didn't necessarily deliver me from, from that struggle. Man, it was nine months of, of to the doctors twice a week, stress test and Sherry going through every conceivable test you can imagine and me taking off work and going there. That was a difficult nine months of our lives. But I can testify that God never forsook us and that God was faithful. And really, through the whole thing, I had a peace that God knew exactly what he was doing and I trusted him. And God never, never stressed us more than we were able and listen, there, and I'm sure everybody here has some story, some thing where something in your life was going to overwhelm you, and God is faithful. I could tell you stories where God spared my life, where God, I can look back and see, man, I would have died right there, and God was good to me, and God was good to my family. God never forsakes us. And anything that God allows in our life, as the psalmist said, God's good. He cuts the cords, and he keeps us straight. Now, look at the last thing he says. He says there's going to be retribution to those who, who had hurt Israel, which is an interesting word in light of what we studied this morning in Revelation. Look at verse 5. He said that all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. He said, let them be as the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, what he's saying there is it was very customary in the time of harvest in Israel that when men and harvesters would pass one another, and it was harvest time, they'd say, God bless you, may the Lord be with you, because they're all harvesting their food, and they're, they're wishing the, God's blessings on one another. And what he says here is those who, those who attack God's people and those who hate Zion, he said, God, I'm praying that you turn them back, and that their sin ultimately be their shame, and that their, their sin against us ultimately that uh, there's justice for that. Is the psalmist going to get his prayer answered one day? What did we learn this morning? Oh, yeah, he sure is. Uh, in God's timing, in God's timing, God's going to make everything right. In all the injustices of the world, all the people in the world who have been mistreated, and listen, the world, listen, here's a revelation for you. The world is an unfair place. I hear, I hear the Gen Zers and the millennials going, man, that's unfair. And I'm like, you just figure that out? I mean, did you just come to that revelation? All of life is unfair. Nothing in life is fair. Matter of fact, everything's unfair. 
If you're looking for fair, you're in the wrong universe. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. But you know who's going to make it fair? You know who's going to make it right? Jesus has come back. And the psalmist said, Lord, let's turn their aggression and their sin into shame. And that's exactly what God's going to do one day. All those who have oppressed his people. Now, what about the church today? And we'll wrap it up. We'll be done early. What about the church today? Does the church get treated fairly in the world today? Do Christians get treated fairly in the world today? Listen, isn't it interesting in our society today? You can't really say a lot about anything anymore because it'll hurt somebody's feelings. I mean, it's just incredible. But you can say anything you want to about a Christian, and nobody cares. I mean, you can pick on Christians. You can pick on God. You can use God's name in vain. You can, you can, you can be ugly to Christians. You can call us all kinds of names and say we're dumb and uneducated and you know yada yada yada. I had a guy tell me one time. He said, "Man, you you just use your faith like a crutch." I said, "Yeah, man, and I'm leaning all over it because it's Jesus. I'm not, you're right, okay." But but you know the whole world can make fun of Christians, but you can't say anything about anything else. That's kind of unfair, isn't it? Unless if we're being fair, let's just talk about it. That's unfair, all right? And I don't like it. And you know the big reason I don't like it? Not because it's being unfair to me, because I really don't care. But I don't like people treating God's name bad. And I don't like them talking about him. You know why? Because he's my dad. He's my heavenly father. He saved me. And I don't like it. And so we might pray the same thing that the psalmist is praying right here. Lord, save them. But if they want to be ugly and be mean, turn it into shame for them. Turn it against them so they can't do that. Now, we've got to be careful because we're not supposed to pray imprecatory prayers right now. Right? You know what an imprecatory prayer is? That's when David said, Lord, cut their head off. <laughs> you know, kill them all, Lord. Wipe them out. Uh, rain fire down on them. We're not supposed to do that, okay? Um, you remember Jesus was teaching and some people were being ugly and the disciples said, Lord, you want us to call down fire on them out of heaven? Jesus said, no. Cool it, boys. No, 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 no. No, we're not doing any fire out of heaven right now. We're doing the gospel, okay? You can be saved. But listen, at some point, you know what? The people, hey, the psalmist, and here it is. We learned this morning. Those, those who, who shame the name of God and, and abuse him and abuse his people, there's a day of reckoning. And the Bible says that we're not to take vengeance. Why? Because God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, which means there's coming a payday. So what's our job right now? Just share the gospel with them and love them. And when they're ugly, tell them Jesus loves you anyway. And because Jesus loves you, I like you, okay? No, <laughs> just kidding. No, because Jesus loves you, I'm going to love you too. Uh, but yeah, there'll be a day of reckoning. All right, here's the bottom line tonight. Uh, life can be hard. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes you deal with stuff, you know, and you sit down at your house and you go, man, I'm tired. I don't, you know, Lord, I'm tired. But you know what? God never lets you have more than you can bear. And whatever it is you're doing, if you're doing what God told you to do, man, you're good till Jesus comes back or takes you home. So it's okay. If you're going through a difficulty in life tonight, I hope I, hope I can encourage your heart with God's word. God knows who you are. You belong to him. You're his. He redeems you. He, you're safe. We read the passage. You are safe by the power of God. You've got an inheritance. It's yours. Whatever the stuff is we go through in this life, no matter how hard it is, it's only for a little while. 
I mean, it's just for a little while. And God will walk with you through it. And then next thing you know, you're going to be in heaven. And boy, it's going to be glorious. And you'll think, well, that was nothing. I mean, it's something right now. I'm not trying to make little of it. But keep the big picture in mind, okay? Listen, if you've never prayed to receive Jesus, those who will be watching this video later, can I invite you to give your heart to Christ? Can I invite you to, to trust in the night and, and have part in that promise and that eternal inheritance? Because Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. You can come to him tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you never forsake us. Thank you that the psalmist could declare, Lord, we've been oppressed on every side from our youth. And we listed the nations, Lord, and many more who throughout the centuries have uh, done just that, oppressed your people. God, the same is true in the church, in the church age. But God, you've never forsaken us, and your church is still here. Your word is still here, and the gospel is still being preached. And I pray tonight, Lord, if there's someone here, someone watching on the video, and they've never, they've never given their heart to you, Lord, and confessed their sin and asked you to save them, and Lord, really just humbled themselves and asked for your grace and your mercy in their life, Lord, I pray they would do it right now. God, they would just say to you, Lord, I, I know I'm a sinner and I've broken your laws and your commands and my transgressions are many, but I trust Jesus that he died for me on the cross and I ask you by all the faith I have, God, save me, forgive me, be my Lord. God, you'll save anybody who asks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it brings. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. I'll be glad to pray with you or help you. If you need to come, come on the first verse.